you've had a lot of change, a lot of personal growth in the last year. So what are the top five lessons that you have learned through that experience? This is a good one. And this is, uh, this is one I've definitely thought about a lot because I do believe for me, 100% the last year of my life, I've grown more than, you know, the previous 31 years and more than I ever thought possible. And there's a few things that come to mind. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. You guys, I cannot believe it, but this is the 200th episode of Pursuing Health. It seems like it was just yesterday that I met Monokfi, one of the founders of Beyond the Whiteboard, for lunch in New York City. And I was so pumped up from the Tony Robbins seminar I had just been to that when he suggested I start a podcast, I said yes. Mo, his partner John Kinnick, and others from Beyond the Whiteboard helped me get the podcast off the ground six years ago, and 200 episodes later, here we are. Starting this podcast was definitely one of the best decisions I've made, and I am so grateful for all the people it's allowed me to meet and the interesting conversations we've had that I've been able to share with all of you. Now, none of this would have been possible without you, the listeners. So whether you've been tuning in week after week since the beginning, you just catch an episode here and there, or you're listening for the first time today, I am so grateful for all of your support, your encouragement, and your honest feedback along the way. So to celebrate 200 episodes, I decided I would ask Pat Sherwood if he'd interview me using questions submitted by you all. Pat is a former Navy SEAL, the flow master at my very first CrossFit Level 1 seminar, and he was the first person to interview me on the CrossFit Games Update show 10 years ago. So it only seemed fitting that he celebrated this milestone with me, and we had a really great conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you again so much for listening, and here's to the next 200 episodes. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now, let's get to it. Two hundred episodes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard to believe. Before we just clicked on a second ago, you said something that got my head spin and made me laugh a bit, which was you thought that potentially I was the first person or one of the first people anyway to interview you almost, I guess, yeah, 10 years ago in 2011 on the update show. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I mean, I just thought about it before we got on, but now I'm going back in my mind and I don't think the year before, I don't think I had any interviews. So I'm pretty sure that was the first one <laughs> 10, 10 years ago. In the blink of an eye from games yeah. to medical school, to residency, to your podcast, I mean, to the ups and downs of life that a decade will throw at you. So, mm-hmm. man, well, here we are. Your, your <laughs> listeners were wonderful enough to submit a whole bunch of fantastic questions. Mm-hmm. We've got a wonderful variety and we've sadly, we apologize. We can't go through every single solitary one. You know, some cuts had to be made. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so you know, but we tried to pick some a good sprinkling, and so mm-hmm. we'll we'll dive right in. People don't want to hear me; they want to hear from your listeners. So here we go. The first one, which I thought was just a good starting point as to why why are we even here, was from Oliver, and that is, what was your main motivation to even become a doctor in the first place? That's a great question. So. 
I think it goes back to high school probably uh, was the first time I thought about going into medicine. And I always, I'd always loved math and science and I loved my first biology class that I took in high school. I just loved learning about how the human body works. So I think that's really where it started. And I, I took a psychology class also that I loved. And then when I went to college, I, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew I wanted to go to med school, but I came from a family where my dad was an engineer and he wanted to make sure I had a good degree that I could get a job with. So I studied yeah, engineering <laughs> and I, um, I mean, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I studied biomedical engineering because for me, that was the only way it was going to be interesting. I loved learning about and applying problems to the human body. Um, and I really did try to do my due diligence because I knew going into the University of Michigan, it seemed like every single person was pre-med when you started. And I wanted to make sure I explored all the other options. I had gotten advice early on from other doctors that, you know, you should really only go into medicine if you can't see yourself doing anything else, because oh, it's just yeah. a long yeah. road. It's a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. And it's not, which I later learned, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. Um, and it's not, you know, don't, you're definitely not going into it for the money. There's a lot of other things you could do if you're trying to make money. Um, and, and so I tried to take that advice to heart and I really explored industry jobs with, um, with engineering or not, I'm not as deep as I probably could have, but I, I explored that idea. I explored going into research and to me, it was really the physician patient interaction and relationship that really struck me and I just couldn't let go of it. Um, just this concept that you get to meet someone for the first time and learn some of the most personal things about them. And they mm -hmm. might share things with you that they haven't even shared with their family yet. And then they're trusting you with that information to be able to help them and the responsibility that you have. And it was just so unique and something that really captivated me. And so I would say that's, that was really the main hook that led me into medicine and um, I was very naive when I started. I had no idea how how uh, many problems we have with medicine in our healthcare system. But to me, that's the core of of what makes me a doctor so special and why I, I pursued it. Where did you find, how did you even develop that hook for the physician-patient relationship? Is that just part of the learning process? And when you got to that, you adored it? Or did, did something cross your path beforehand? Um, I think, yeah, just learning about money. I think there were a couple of classes I took in college, one about the history of medicine, um, some of the experiences that I had shadowing, just trying to understand, you know, what the field was like before making that decision. I remember one specific day that, and I think I wrote about this in my personal statement when I applied to med school, where I had been shadowing someone, um, in the office, it was a plastic surgeon and, you know, we, you know, when you're a student and you're shadowing, you get to wear someone's extra white coat. So you feel all important. <laughs> and then, you nice. know, they, you see this patient in the office. And then I remember going outside after the day was over and sitting on a bench while I was waiting for the bus to go back to my house. Um, and then I remember seeing the patient and I didn't have the white coat on anymore. I remember seeing the patient walk out and being like, wow, I just had this interaction with this person in this room. And now I know so much about them. And now they're here just as a normal person walking down the street and, you know, I'm not wearing the white coat, but there's something about that. Like you go into a room, all of a sudden you have this white coat on and people start mm -hmm. trusting you with all this information. And then you have this responsibility to help them. Um, it was just, 
really fascinating to me. We could go down a rabbit hole about the white coat. In all honesty, <laughs> Which now I hate coat. white coats. I never want to wear a white coat. It's so funny. <laughs> but it's just the symbolism of it, I think. Yeah, but no, but you're right. But what it does symbolize is it's a big deal and it's important whether it should be or not. Like society yeah. has made it into something yeah. very big. And when, if somebody is wearing that white coat, the citizens that walk into that room expect the person wearing that white coat to be almost all-knowing quite mm-hmm. frankly, in any question in the world about human beings on planet earth, that person in the white coach, you know, the answer. <laughs> it's, it's right. No matter what kind of me, even if you're, you know, a foot doctor, you better know everything about the brain or the heart or anything else. You know, yeah. And that, that patient relationship is a, it is a big one. You're right. I never thought about it that way because, you know, as I told you beforehand, my wife and I are expecting our third child here in about three weeks. And so we've had, a lot of interactions with mm-hmm. physicians over the course of the last eight months. And, you know, without going down uh, some different paths, like we had some, some challenges and some scares. And in times like that, it becomes really obvious how important and critical that role is. And yeah, how much of a personal window into somebody's life that mm-hmm. physician is part to. And it's, it's certainly nothing that should be taken lightly. So that's pretty cool, but that's, mm-hmm something which yeah. is, is uh, near and dear to you. Yeah. And it's also interesting too, now, the more that I learned about medicine and our healthcare system, how there's also the other side, which is there's, and in a lot of ways, it can be the opposite where there's a huge mistrust with doctors in the healthcare system. And so it can actually be really quite the opposite um, where someone sees, you know, in a traditional conventional setting with a white coat, there's immediately a lot of distrust. So it's, it's an interesting paradigm. Yes, we have actually changed doctors in recent, in, in the last year, our, our primary care physician uh, due to that and just due to, you know, my you know background, which is certainly not a physician, but in the human body, yeah. it's healthy, not healthy. There was just some stark differences. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think we can cross this bridge together, sir. Like we're going right, to right. have to. Right, right. So, at least uh, able to have some things in common. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's great that you had interest in, in math and science when you were in high school. You know, my, my kids will be there soon and I'm trying my utmost to let them know that like math and science is cool. So you cool. Want, you want to <laughs> that it will treat you well for the rest of your life. Yes. You know, <laughs> whatever direction you go. So, okay. That's right. Some well, I, I had some great teachers. Circle. That makes all the difference. Oh yeah, for sure. And there are some things you said there that we could circle back to, but we'll, I'm going to, I'm just going to keep them here in case we uh, need questions. I don't think we will. I'm going to try to get to your users mm-hmm. question. So, um, so the first one we'll take is from Sharon and I like Sharon's question because it leads someplace that I want to go. And you touched on it a bit right there with, with mm-hmm. trust, be it, be it building trust or breaking trust. Mm-hmm. And Sharon says, it seems as if functional holistic or alternative medicine is in its infancy. I'm a nurse. I worked in the ER where almost all of the physicians shun and mock any sort of holistic, functional, or alternative ideas, even in their outside the hospital life. I understand that since it's not the quote unquote standard of care, they risk legal ramifications if they only recommend functional, holistic, alternative remedies. But when they don't embrace them outside the hospital, it makes me wonder how they can be convinced that it does work in many cases and, you know, is there a way that they could weave these suggestions into their patients? So 
being classically trained in medicine and then obviously having your background in CrossFit and functional fitness and knowing that squatting is not bad for your knees, I'm sure you walk this tightrope on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it just touches on, I mean, in a lot of ways, similarities with how people receive CrossFit, right? I mean, I think from someone coming from a very traditional exercise setting and, you know, the traditional globo gym, bodybuilding, whatever it was, maybe we take this back 20 years ago when it wasn't so mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, There are extremes, right? And a lot of it just has to be with, has to do with, I think, how open-minded people are um, because you can go certainly too far in the extreme. Like if someone first saw CrossFit and it was, people working out for four hours a day and throwing up every time they worked out and like, you know, doing 300 GHG sit-ups and getting rhabdo. Like, yeah, that sounds crazy. Right. But there's also, (laughs) you can find the extremes with them when you dial it back and you get to the core of what it is, which is functional movement, high intensity, constantly varied. And you really implement the core of that, the way that it was intended it's a beautiful, powerful thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the same goes for a lot of what's out there with functional holistic alternative medicine, where if you're very traditionally trained, you kind of stick to the books and you're told, you know, this stuff is crazy. It's way out there. There's no data behind it, but there's also so many things in conventional medicine that we don't have answers for, or that we can't explain, or that, you know, we have band-aids for problems that don't actually help the problem get to the root cause of the problem. It just, it follows the recipe and it, you know, you do what you're supposed to do. And so we have to acknowledge that, you know, there's a lot of holes that conventional medicine has. It's really bad at helping to create health. It's really good in emergency situations um, and in acute situations, but there's a lot of things that conventional medicine just doesn't have answers for. And so you have to start thinking outside the box and looking for those answers. And yeah, you can go way to the extreme to where, you know, somebody has done every test under the sun and is, Mm -hmm. you know, treating like heavy metals and SIBO and candida and Lyme disease and like mold and all these things. And some people do have legitimately have issues with all those things, but you can also go so far that it, it, um, it turns people in a, like in the conventional medical system off. And they're like, well, that's crazy. It's not founded in research. And so, so I think you have to just get back to the middle of like, what is the root? And to me, why I love the functional medicine approach is it's really the philosophy. It's saying, Hey, the body's a system. It's not an independent heart and lung and brain and musculoskeletal system and kidneys. Like we are a living, breathing system and everything interacts Mm -hmm. and when something is off, it manifests disease. And it's, you know, it's, it's looking at the body as a system and it's trying to look for what the root causes of disease are. And that's it. And if you just go by that philosophy, um, you know, then you can get into, okay, what are the possible root causes and how far do we dig and all those things. But if you just stick to the general, like, this is the philosophy of functional medicine, let's get to the root cause. Let's give the body what it needs to heal. Um, take all the bad stuff out, put all the stuff that the body needs in. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Nobody can really argue with that. And so I think it's just, and we're seeing it now to the point where, you know, I don't know, I'd have to look up the statistics, but a huge number of people are going outside the conventional medical system for any of their health concerns. So even if people are using their traditional primary care, they're also going to get acupuncture or massage or see a chiropractor or a naturopath 
it's something that's so part of um, our culture now because people aren't getting all the answers that they need from the conventional system. Um, and I think there's more doctors and healthcare systems that are becoming more and more open to it. You're seeing alternative medicine, functional medicine popping up even in these big healthcare systems. And so I think we're at a tipping point where, and I don't know how long it's going to take for us to tip over the edge, but where we're starting to have these conversations and we're starting to see it be incorporated. And, you know, the demand is there. There's going to come a point where conventional medicine can't ignore it anymore because people need it and they're not getting answers. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest telltale signs is that most um, practitioners that you see going over from being trained conventionally and then going over to practice functional or integrative or alternative medicine, it's because of their own personal health. So they've mm. had something happen where the conventional healthcare system didn't have an answer for them and they were not getting better and they had to go seek out answers on their own and they found something that worked and now they can't unsee that and they want to use it to help other people. Um, and so a lot of times I think that has to be the tipping point, just the same way where someone, a lot of, a lot of the best way to try CrossFit is to come do it. Once you do it, you're like, okay, okay, I'm in. Um, and so I think, I think we're going to see it change, but it's, it's hard. It's like anything new and any paradigm shift, it takes time. And does, you know, going back to Sharon's question, she mentioned potentially some restrictions that the physician has on them based around the standard of care but you know, some crazy civilian like me, I don't have to deal with anything like that. You know, so somebody can come home from the doctor, a friend of mine or a relative complaining of a, a mystery ailment or inflammation or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, I'm not, not a physician, but I see them explaining this story to me, sure. uh, 40 pounds overweight, eating a Big Mac, drinking a Mountain Dew with a, a fry. And I go, Hey, look, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't know what caused it, but I have an idea that something that wouldn't hurt if we eliminated some aspects sure. from your life does can, is that a doctor overstepping, a physician overstepping their bounds by the standard of care to be like, you know, how, how do you eat and, and diving into that? Or is, are, are physicians maybe some more than others not comfortable based upon training you do or don't receive in med school? You know, where's, where's that blurry line? No, I mean, it's definitely not overstepping the standard of care. And it is the standard of care that, you know, most guidelines for any type of chronic disease, the very first thing on the bottom of the pyramid is lifestyle. It's, you know, nutrition, exercise, all that stuff. But the issue is in the implementation, because one, we're not taught much about it in medical school. And two, there's not really a lot of time to talk about this stuff. And three, you're seeing someone for maybe 15 minutes every three months, which is not a great window to be able to actually mm -hmm. implement some behavior change or get through. So most doctors, I think, will mention it and will bring it up to their degree of comfort level with talking about these things. Um, but then there comes a point where they become very, I don't want to say jaded, but kind of jaded because it's how many patients do they see that come in the door that they say, Hey, you know, let's exercise and eat better. And then of course they don't, cause they don't see them for three months. And it's not like, you know, it's not like, I, and it's going to be easy to change something like that without the right support system and someone to show you what to do. And so they just see that it always fails. So why should I, try anything different. And mm -hmm. it's sort of this like self-fulfilling prophecy. And then it could be easier. I'm not trying to pigeonhole all physicians into this, but then if you, you know, it does become Jay, you're not there. It's easier to say, well, you're probably not going to work out. So go fill right. this at the pharmacy and take it a few times a day. And we hopefully that clears it up. Totally. You can see just by human nature, like instead of saying like, okay, at first, like, let's give you three months and really see if you can go for it. And if we see improvements, great. If not, maybe we'll talk about starting a medicine 
to jumping to the medicine a little bit quicker just because they've seen it time after time after time where the lifestyle stuff, quote unquote, isn't working. But it's really, I think, more of a a reflection on the healthcare system and how the healthcare system isn't set up to help people Mm -hmm. make the lifestyle changes that are so important. You you know, and I loved Sharon's question a lot because it was trying to blend those two worlds of what happens classically or traditionally, I should say, in medicine, and then, you know, functional and, and alternative ideas. And with myself as an example, you know, I, I broke my pelvis like 20 years ago, got plates and screws holding it together. It was really a bad deal. Yeah. It's significantly yeah. my structure forever. And based upon that, the classic, such a substantial injury to such a major part of the body, they were like, look, you know, you basically shouldn't do anything challenging mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. You know, that's the, don't touch it because heaven yeah. forbid you hurt, you're going to come back and try to sue me. So don't, don't do anything. <laughs> And of course I blew that off. And then when I would go, you know, 10 years later for a checkup, my doc would ask me how I'm doing, test range of motion, strength about the joints and all that stuff. And I would never tell my doctor before the test, what I was doing, that I was squatting. And I would just right. let him perform the test. And then, then he's like, geez, things are looking fantastic and great range of motion and strength. Like, what are you doing? Only after. After he gave me the like the good report card, yeah. where I go, oh, just you know, I squat and deadlift and I run and I sprint. And he'd be like, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be doing any of that. And I actually had a couple conversations like, look, which is it? You can't have both. You're saying that I'm different than most patients that you see, yet this is what I'm doing and they're not. Like something, there's a disconnect there and you can see a little bit of steam coming out of the head like, all right, well, be careful. You know, it, seem, it seems to be working. I don't know if I trust it yet. Yeah. It could just be an anomaly. So I, I do very much hope one day that on top of, like you said, hospital has to be acute care, right? I mean, even as a trainer, you break your femur. I can't help you. You need right. a physician, right? You know, but before that, if we're addressing lifestyle and diet and how the body should move and, and you know, the big, the big goal of physicians and trainers and this whole ecosystem of people trying to help each other, it would be great if some sort of symbiotic balance is like you said, maybe a tipping point is in the near future. Right. Absolutely. And just, just um, to think about, right. What our standard is like now that we have so many people who are doing CrossFit and are exposed to functional movement, you know, that should be the standard, right. Instead of being afraid to do it. And what, if we have that as the standard and people are healthier, um, you know, it's not so scary anymore. Yep. So fingers crossed. Okay. Fingers crossed. This next this one caught my my eye because I'm fascinated by how people manage their time and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Alina asked you, how did you adjust your fitness goals and your schedule during residency? And I'll tie it into the next uh, question, which was which was from Valencia, who basically asked, you know, how do you tell yourself it's okay to miss or rearrange some workouts due to family commitment. So we're basically talking about being really busy, whether it's residency, family or whatnot. How did you adjust your fitness and how did you let yourself know, Hey, it's, it's okay that I'm not in game shape anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a constantly evolving process for sure. <laughs> I think I was, I was lucky in that I kind of got, I had a nice transition away from, uh, from competing. So I went from competing and then I had, two years left of med school. And then I went to two years or three years of residency. And during my two years of med school, I still had a lot of fitness sort of built up from that six year period of training for the games. And the first year I 
just set this goal for myself somewhere along the way that let me just see if I can compete at regionals and still, or compete in the open and still qualify to regionals. And so that was kind of my goal. And I was surprised, but I did. And I just had fun. I went to regional and I had so much fun because I had no expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but that kind of kept me on a schedule of like, okay, I need to hit my five workouts. Basically I did five hour long workouts a week. Um, and then I sort during, of did the same during thing your, during med school residency during med school. That was okay. like my, you know, traditional third year of med school during um, clinicals. And then the fourth year of med school or traditional fourth year, it was actually my sixth year, but that's a longer story. <laughs> we, um, we had a team qualify from my gym. And so that sort of kept me also really on a good schedule. And towards the end, there was a, you know, a couple of months in between med school and residency around the time of regionals that year. So I just had fun training and it was a great experience. And then I went into residency and that's really where everything changed for me because suddenly like I didn't have any goals or aspirations of competing anymore and working out really just became for my own sanity and mental health. And I realized early on that, you know, I needed to hit a minimum of workouts per week just to feel like myself. And that's really what it became for me. I think during residency, um, I think I probably talked about this for me, three is definitely the bare minimum. Um, but during residency, I think I've told this maybe on other episodes before, but there was my first rotation. I had actually labor and delivery, two months of labor and delivery. Um, and you know, it's up, you know, you're there at five 30 and you know, it's like long days and weekends and, I was, you know, an intern. So I'm like super nervous and I just want to do a really good job and I don't want to mess anything mm-hmm. up. And so I didn't work out for two weeks. Cause I was like, okay, I gotta go. I gotta sleep. I do this stuff. And I was depressed. <laughs> like I remember yeah. walking out of work one day and I was just in tears and I was like, okay, I think I, you know, I didn't want to go in the gym. It was the last thing I wanted to do, but I sort of knew intuitively, this is what I need. And I went and worked out it was a slow work. It wasn't anything crazy, but I kind of pushed myself through it. And afterwards I walked out a completely different person. And that's when I knew, okay, Julie, like you have to hit a minimum number of workouts a week to be yourself and to be the, you know, be the person that you need to be um, at work and residency, all these things. So I would say through is my minimum and it's always better if I could do it in a class and an affiliate around other people that always just makes, that makes it so much more effective. Um, And I just try to stick to that. I would say most weeks I would get like four good weeks, five. Um, And then I also started to just do shorter workouts. Sometimes if I couldn't get to the gym, I just do some burpees at home or something, you know, I had a bike at home. I would hop on the bike for a few minutes and just try to get my heart rate up at least, you know, four or five days a week. The power of burpees. I know. So simple and so effective. <laughs> you know, it may not help your one rep max back squat, but I tell you what, there's a lot of fitness packed into just dropping down wherever you are and just Absolutely. getting it up five or 10 minutes. You can get a Absolutely. lot done. A lot done. There's really, that's, you know, there's no excuse. I mean, I would always say if you're going to take a shower, like do burpees for a minute or two minutes before you hop in the shower, like you can, you can spare two minutes. During that time, we'll get two questions. Number one, is there a halfway decent gym at the hospital that you can pop into or not really? So at the hospital I worked at, there actually was, I didn't think I used it at all though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have. I didn't use it. I think I only went down there once when I was giving someone a tour, <laughs> but it was, you know, it's a lot of machines and um, 
there were some bikes and stuff. It was actually not a bad gym because they used it for their cardiac rehab. So they, it was pretty big. Okay. Um, it was in the basement. <laughs> um, I did a few times do like yoga when I was at the hot, like on call or whatever in a call room, but or stretch or something, but a lot of machines, but you'd be the weirdo against the wall doing handstand push. Yeah. Really good. Don't, don't <laughs> mind Julie. Uh, so you did your best to get at least three workouts in a week and, and good on you for doing that. I think that's a testament to it during that same period of time where it took some discipline and focus to keep the fitness on track. Did you struggle with the diet during that time? Was it easy to just, you're rushed, grab something quick. That's less than ideal. Or were you able to like meal prep or, you know, in that chaotic situation? Mm -hmm. I sometimes would meal prep, but I, I've just been, um, really, I, I've just gotten a lot of like pre-prepared meals. So there was, I don't even think they're around anymore, but there was one called true fair that had frozen basically paleo meals that I would use. I used those through most of residency. Um, and then sometimes I would meal prep. I, I definitely always tried to, to eat whole foods. I mean, that was, I just feel better that way. Um, and I would take the time, like if I could, depending on what time I started work, I would always try to take the time to make breakfast because I just love breakfast. <laughs> I have the best meal of the day. Yeah. Since, since we're touching on working out at the moment, I hit you with the two workout questions that, that right. rolled in. Chad just got right to it. I love Chad. Do you have any desire to compete as a master in the near <laughs> future? It's so funny. I have zero desire to compete. I don't know, you know if that will come back at some point in the future, but I have zero desire. I think, I think just because I know how much goes into it. I mean, you know, it's such a huge time and energy commitment. And I just think there's so many other things I want to do in my life. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm 32. So three years from now, I could technically be in the master's, but I also hopefully want to have a family someday. I think there's other things I want to do in work and in life that are important. And for me to think about spending hours a day working out again, I just don't know that that's something that I want to do. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> as, as somebody that followed athletes for many, many years, you know, my wife went to the games a, a couple of years. I think you're right. I, people see what happens in the competition floor and it looks fun and it looks flashy and it looks whatever, but the mm -hmm. grind behind the scenes. Oh yeah hours and hours and the commitment and the dedication and the sacrifice to whether it's you're you have to be a bit selfish right I mean, if you're going to try to Absolutely. be one of the people in the world that just doesn't come casually mm -hmm. you know you're not living oh, a balanced no. life yeah not a balance and I think that's one of the the biggest things I've learned and I don't regret anything about it I'm so glad that I did it and I think it helped me grow as a person so much and I wouldn't change anything um, but it is, it's, you know, it's the time commitment, it's the energy commitment, because it is all consuming, you're constantly thinking about it, whether you think you are or not, it's always in the back of your mind every day. Um, and I know when I was done, it was, the, I didn't realize it's one of those things, you don't realize how much stress you're under until it's gone. And then you're like, wow, I've been living with this for six years, I had no idea what a weight this was that is right. on your shoulders every day. Um and like you said, it is, it is selfish to be able to have a, a goal like that, where you're trying to be the best in the world at something like everything else comes after it. And 
um, you do have to be selfish. And there was things about the way that I live my life then that I'm not super happy about, like just because I was Mm -hmm. always prioritizing my own training. Um, But I also think that's something that you have to do for that season of life when you have a goal like that. Yep, absolutely. You know, there was somebody, there was a competitor years ago back when regionals was going down and they were, I I think it was Matt Chan actually. And he was talking to somebody in the Colorado area about like what it takes to be like a games athlete. And Mm -hmm. this this competitor at the end was like, look, no disrespect, but I, why would you tell me what it really takes? Because I would be your competitor. Like we're in the same region. So why would you (laughs) give me all these pearls of wisdom? And God bless Matt Chen. He goes, cause you won't do it because it's so hard every day. You might be really fired up for a week or two, but like eight months from now, if you're still like at the track doing 400 repeats, you won't be most people like that level of commitment sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, until you realize all the other things you have to give up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting deal. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were competing famously or infamously, or we should say at regionals, you did have the Achilles tendon mm-hmm. blowout. You know, I, I remember, and of course, like any good sane person, you, you know, you decide to step out of the competition. Of course not. It's good for competing. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but when you did rupture that Achilles, that relates to a question here that Chris asked, which he says, were there any signs or symptoms leading up to that injury that looking back may have indicated the Achilles was going to rupture? If so, what were they? And do you have any precautions that you take now? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a great question. And one where I would say, um, do as I say and not as I do, because I had some warning signs. <laughs> not um, competitor to not compete. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, it's actually funny because I think it had been a year earlier, two two years earlier. Um, Kelly Starrett had come to the gym where I was training at in Ann Arbor and done his mobility seminar, and I remember him looking at me across the room, pointing at my ankle, and being like you got to fix that. <laughs> and him pointing out this big, um, I think it's called a Haglund's deformity basically on your heel that, um, can happen and puts you at risk for Achilles tendon rupture. And he had noticed mm-hmm. it and I was like, huh, okay. But I didn't really understand at the time. And I'd had problems with my plantar fascia for a long time. When I first started to CrossFit, I was, I loved box jumps. Like I would do box jumps all day. You know, I had no problem with them. And then there came a point where I just started to have a ton of plantar fasciitis and I couldn't Mm. do rebounding box jumps. So I wasn't doing a lot unless it was a competition. I was pretty much always stepping down and, um, I just could have done a better job taking care of them. And I always knew, even when I, the year or two before it tore, um, I had been working with my gymnastics coaches and one of them was a foot and ankle surgeon and he was giving me exercises to help with them. But I, I think that there's probably more I could have done. Um, and even that, that competition before it, it felt great. I remember doing the workout ahead, rebounding box jumps. I did it twice in training, which I normally wouldn't do, but I did it twice because it felt so good. Um, and my Achilles felt great. And then the, the day before the competition started, I went for a jog, like after I'd flown in and to try to just get loose before the competition. Right. And I remember it hurting a little bit that night and just being like, Hmm, this is weird. And then a tour. And it was always something that was in the back of my mind is like the worst possible thing that could happen. Oh, <laughs> and course. so when it happened, Cameras I was on. like, oh man. <laughs> so now basically to answer the question, one of the things that's most helpful in preventing Achilles tendon tears is um, eccentric 
calf raises, weighted eccentric calf raises. And those were very helpful for me with my recovery. And it's something that I probably now don't do as much as I should, but I try to do every so often um, to help that one, but also to prevent a tear in the other one too. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but I had a really grouchy Achilles tendon several men have had it off and on, but years ago, like it was bad, like mm-hmm. bad to the touch. And I think I remember that. Yeah. I reached out to you because I, I knew yeah. what you'd gone through and you gave me three exercises and one was the eccentric weighted calf raises, calf raises. Or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. The second one was you recommended this small. The foot rubs ball. ball. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, I bought I that. that thing. It's a and little thing. The, I mean, I have no interest in this company, but it's uh, it's called Foot Rubs. You find it on Amazon, and it's a little green ball with spikes on it, and you roll it on the bottom of your foot. It's better than, I think, a golf ball or anything else I've tried. Well, there it is. Look at that. <laughs> I have the same one in my bag. <laughs> they, ought to, they ought to send us a, a cut of the, of the proceeds. Totally. For, for the there. <laughs> but I got that, and I think the third thing you said was to roll out my calves. Yeah. And I did yeah, all three sure. of those things. And, you know, I don't know if that fixed it, but it went away. So it, it, right. it went well. That's, that's always been my now go-to advice. When anyone asks me the same question, I give you credit. I'm like, Hey, this, this worked for me. And I recommend that little ball. And I was shocked when I rolled my heel around the ball, the terrible crunching sound. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's awful. In the bottom of my foot. I was like, of course, of course I have pain. Something's not right there. <laughs> right, so right. yes. Uh, <laughs> Very, very cool. And we're obviously That's glad that you're full. Any, any issues from then or happy and healthy with the Achilles to this yeah, day? Happy and healthy. I mean, sometimes my, my plantar fascia still bothers me or they get sore. And usually if I do those three things, um, it goes away. This isn't on the list, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this. Is there anything, any training, any particular aspect that pops into your head that you had to do as like mission critical uh, for games training that now you don't need to do as a regular civilian. You're so happy not to do it anymore. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if there's anything that I just absolutely hated. And th- there's a lot of things that I don't do now cause I don't have to, but I don't, it's not that I don't love them. Like swimming. I haven't swam in a long time, but I used to love swimming. Right, it's okay. more of a like convenience thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or like sled poles. I probably don't, I used to do those all the time and I haven't done a lot of those lately. Um, I mean, I just hate it. So my coach would do this strength. I mean, I can't believe the stuff I used to do. <laughs> it is crazy to think back, but we used to do these strength couplets where we go alternating on the minute with heavy, like sets of five or seven or three squats and like some lower body, some upper body thing. So it was either like a front squat and a weighted pull up or back squat and press or deadlift and thruster I think was one of the combos and it was brutal every time like it was like you got you had a war for 10 minutes every single time um and I mean I loved it in the in the sense that I got so strong and I felt so prepared for competitions but um it was painful (laughs) no (laughs) all right well we'll take a little a little detour from the from the land of, of CrossFit and physical fitness and and circle back into some medicine. And the next two questions, I might be some of my favorites here. So we'll start with the first one here is from Crystal. And Crystal states, I'm currently studying to be an RD, definitely not as intense as medical school, but still a lot of science, memorization, learning concepts. What was your favorite and most beneficial style of studying? And I find this fascinating because you guys have to 
cram so much into your head? What worked for you? So it's a great question. And it's, there's so many different ways to learn and study now. I think even, you know, there's all the latest things when I was in med school and even now, you know, four or five years later, there's new technology, new apps, new flashcards, all kinds of stuff. And Mm -hmm. for me, I think what always helped me was just writing it out. So if I would read something like writing it out myself, drawing diagrams, like that would always help it stick into my memory. And then I would go back to all those notes and just like repeatedly go over them in my head and make sense of them. And to me, it's, it's just putting it all together and making sense of sort of the map of things in your mind, um, which helped to write it out. And I'd always been like that, even in college, whether it was, you know, chemistry or math or other subjects where it was a lot more just writing notes, I always would write them myself, myself and then just repeat reading those notes really frequently. And did you, did you have to stuff it into your head? Obviously you'd like ideally retain it for long-term use, but did you have to <laughs> stuff it in your head to make sure that you could properly, you know, pass the exam, move on to the next phase, or did everything build on everything and you kind of could never even forget what you learned 18 months ago because it ties into what we're learning now, or how did that work? Oh, I don't know if you want to know the answer to this. I, um, so some of the tests, so there's a difference between like anything that you learn there's a difference between things that you need to know for application of real world knowledge. And then there's things that you need to know because they're going to be on the test. <laughs> and so there's definitely an aspect of that. There's um, and some things, especially I remember like the first step of the board exam, which is a lot of basic science. There's a lot of details of um, pharmacology and microbiology and a lot of things like that, that you would just have to sort of memorize beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of them, exited my brain pretty quickly after that. And a lot of those things are things that now you can easily act. If you need to know them, you can easily access and look them up. Um, But the concepts, I think, and the way that things work together is stuff that you really kind of like cement and know and then build on over time. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense. I mean, and that's like so many other things in the world, the concept versus the actual rule. You know, we were not to relate medicine to just casually driving a car, but we were driving somewhere and my son like, Hey, so he said, you know, with, with driver's ed coming up in a few years, whatnot, like, is there a law? Like how far in advance do I need to put on my turn signal to make a turn? I was like, Oh buddy, I have no idea. I couldn't tell you that. Like I had to memorize that for the test. I don't know if it's a hundred feet or 150 feet, but in the real world, you just need to make sure you put it on in plenty of time. Right. Right. And you're not going to get pulled over because some cops said it's supposed to be a hundred feet. You were 90 feet. <laughs> right. Said, or like you were yeah. one inch over. Exactly. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of things that, that function like that. Yeah. Then the next one, this is a, this is a good one. You've had a lot of change, a lot of personal growth in the last year. So what are the top five lessons that you have learned through that experience? This is a good one. And this is, uh, this is one I've definitely thought about a lot because I do believe for me, 100%, the last year of my life, I've grown more than, you know, the previous 31 years and more than I ever thought possible. Um, and there's a few, a few things that come to mind. I think the first one, um, and the first two probably have to go together. One is just about the people that you surround yourself with and being really intentional about that. And I think that's something that's talked about all the time, you know, who are the five people you spend the most time with. And it's something that you hear a lot but it's a different, it's different between hearing it and really, really putting it into practice. Cause sometimes it's hard 
And a lot of times the people that you spend a lot of time with is sort of by default. It's like who you're working with or who comes in, happens to come into your life. And then you're being a nice person and spending time with them. And, and so, yeah, convenience for sure. And so um, that was something that I really took a step back and had to be really intentional about and just realizing the impact that people have, whether it's subconscious or not, you know, the people that you're around definitely influence your decisions and who you are and how you act. And so that was a big one. And really, and also the difference between knowing who is your inner, inner circle, like there's a difference between just having people in your life that you like spending time with, but who's your inner inner circle of people that, you know, you can go to with, you know, the hardest stuff and they're going to speak truth to you and they're going to give you good advice. They're going to tell you the the things that are hard to hear. Even when you don't want to hear them, they're not just going to try to make you feel good. Um, and so that was important for me really identifying, yeah, who those people are in my life. Um, and I think that goes with the second important lesson, which is really living your life according to like your truth, instead of, if it, instead of letting the world around you influence how you live your life. And I think I'd always, I'd never thought that I was really bad at that, but it turned out I was, <laughs> you think that all these things, whether it's Instagram, whether it's going down this path in medicine where you're constantly in a, um, have this like carrot in front of you where like you graduate undergrad, then you go to med school, then you go to residency, then you get a job. And then you like wake up and you're like, where am I? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, all of these different conventions that we have about how we think we should be living our lives and stepping back and asking yourself, like, is this really who I want to be or the path that I want to take and examining, you know, what it is that, you know, is true for you. And it's hard to do. I mean, I think, one thing that helped me a lot this year was taking a lot more time to myself and getting rid of all those other influences and voices. And I took a lot of time away from social media and, um, you know, spent time with those people that inner inner circle that I knew I could really trust. And I think that allows you to really peel back the layers and get to what it is that's true um, at your core. So I, I think those are social media was glorious, glorious. And I'm still honestly, like I, I still don't really know. I'm, I'm still in this like love, not love, hate, but like, I'm not really quite sure what to do with it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Because I still, I think that there is definitely a lot of positives in it and I want to continue using it, but I also feel very conflicted about it a lot of times. Oh, I, I'm in the middle of a, an amazing book about social media, addictive behavior traits and the engineering of an addictive experience mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, it's a powerful tool. I mean, if you want to communicate with people and spread a totally. message, you can do immense good, but like everything else, it's so easy to be misused and, and potentially not even misused because unbeknownst to the average user, there's very smart team of engineers trying to make it hard for you to make good decisions. Right. You know, so right. Social is an interesting, it's an interesting it's thing. Okay. Yeah, very, super very cool. interesting. Right. And on the flip side, you know, since I've been off it, I would say, you know, I have posted, some in the past, you know, five or six months, but I haven't really rarely ever looked at the feed. And I I did a process of kind of like unfollowing people that I didn't want to follow anymore and kind of pared down who I'm following, but I really haven't looked at the feed. I'm still not quite like quite there yet, but I've also missed a lot of things. Like I've missed, you know, people who I do care about, you know, not, not that I'm like, um, in my inner inner circle, but people that I do care about, like big things happen in their life that I don't know. And if I had seen it on social media, I might've reached out to them and said something. And then months go by and I'm like, Oh, like you're pregnant. Or like one of my best, one of my best friends from college, this is funny. 
um, she was pregnant and I, I, we have a WhatsApp, but I haven't, I'm so bad. At, I don't have any notifications on my phone. So I've never checked WhatsApp. And mm-hmm. she, uh, she had said in the WhatsApp to our group of friends from college, like, Hey, I'm pregnant, all this stuff, exciting, but I didn't <laughs> check it. And so then I happened to open Instagram, like, I don't know, six weeks later. And that was the first you know, post I saw that she had announced that she was pregnant. I'm like, Oh my gosh, congratulations. I had no idea. And she's like, well, I told you six weeks ago on WhatsApp, everybody. <laughs> and I just missed it. So, yeah. It's hard to, you know, I think at the end of the day, like it's like these circles, right? You have your inner circle of people that you like keep in close contact with, and you know, everything about your life. Then you have this like next layer of people that you spend time with and you like are invested in their life and want to help them and, and have a, a good friendship. And then you have this like next layer, which I think for a lot of us, like we probably hear about things through social media, whether it's mm-hmm. Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. And it's, um, it's just such an interesting, it's just such an interesting concept, you know? It's a bizarre world and it's, it's, it's getting more bizarre by, by the day. I did the same thing as you. I've got basically all notifications off of my phone, you know, because uh-huh. I, I want to choose when I use my electronic device. I don't want my electronic device telling right. me when I right. look at it. And I think I went down on Instagram from several hundred people that I was following to, I think I now I follow like 12. Yeah, that's amazing. And, but but what's so crazy in 2021, that's like a that's like very offensive to people if you unfollow them. So I had to I had to like literally <laughs> make calls to people and be like, look, hey, I'm unfollowing a lot of people. I still love you and care about you, but I just yeah. I need a bit of a social media break. And right. people are actually quite cool about it, but some people are like, bro, what's going on? What's what right. I'm like, no, no, we're friends. We're friends yeah. in real life. Yeah, like you didn't do anything. It's okay. Nope, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, I guess there's a couple more, five things. So um, the other the other one was, and I think this is something that is one of those constant life lessons that we see play out in different people's eyes over and over again, was just that to know that the hard things that we're going through are happening for us and not to us. And going through them, just like having faith and trust that they're, te- they're there to teach you a lesson. They're there to make you stronger, to prepare you for, you know, whatever is coming in your life in the future. And it's so hard to see that in the moment. But um, I think learning that lesson, it helps sometimes a little bit <laughs> whenever you go through hard things to try to remember back to that and be like, okay, what is this teaching me? Or what can I learn from this? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, relating it back to the gym right like you you have to stress the system in mm-hmm. order for the system to go stronger you know Absolutely. and sadly, those, those life stresses can be profoundly painful but some serious growth i love that analogy and what's the alternative right just sitting on the couch eating mcdonald's every day that's no way yep. to live that's nope, no way to live nope. and, and you will go in the direction you'll go in the opposite direction you know living in an overly safe overly comfortable life right. without stress there's, there's no adaptation there. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no positive growth. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll wholeheartedly so agree true. with that one. So true. Um, and then my last two, one is just more about, for me, and it sounds kind of cheesy, I guess, but it's just about loving yourself. Like I think so many, and I've seen it over and over again, like so many um, pains and problems that people have come from not really loving themselves and being so hard on themselves and beating themselves up over and over again. And I think that's been big for me is appreciating like 
just appreciating who I am and, and realizing that, yeah, I'm not perfect. And I have a lot of things to learn and ways to grow still, but that's all part of the process. Um, and I'm still not great. Like I still have my moments where I'm really way too hard on myself, but I think it's just something important to come back to. And that's helped me a lot more. Um, you know, and then my last, sorry, you know, what, what might help that as well is a significant reduction in social media. Like it's, yeah. it's easy to be hard on yourself when you're always comparing yourself to people's fake lives. That's so true. On, on Instagram. So I'm sure those two might've been related. Okay. I'm sorry I love to that. You with that one. I love that. Yes. Um, and just not being afraid to like do the things that you need. You know, I think so many people, you know, there's a million excuses to just work all day and like constantly be doing things for other people. And it's, it's okay to take time for yourself. You know, like we need that, whether it's working out, whether it's getting a massage, whether it's going for a walk and listening to music, you know, like those things are important to do to help you be the person you need to be for all the other people in your life. Um, so that's one thing. And then the last thing for me um, and this, I think can come in different forms, depending on who you are. But for me, it has been prayer. I think it can come, you know, whether you're praying to God or creator or whatever you believe in, or it's intentions that you're putting out into the world mm -hmm. that are manifesting, however you want to put it. It's, it's being able to, for me, have that conversation with my creator and like kind of bring everything there. And it has grown so much, you know, I grew up in a, in a sort of religion, faith, background and just in the past year I would say it has become so much more for me where it's not just a religion and rules to follow but it is this personal relationship with God and my creator and I have seen such incredible things come from prayer it's just so powerful and so that's something that I've been um really like spending a lot of time on and seeing amazing things happen in my life from I fully believe that I, I kind of think of a well around is not the word I'm looking for but uh, but a stable life and I'm still not saying it properly but you know it's the stool or table that has several legs and mm -hmm. I think from the people that I interact with on a regular basis when the people I meet one of those legs is a spiritual one grounding them I would be lying if I didn't say those people seem to be on a better path not saying they're they're certainly not perfect and they'll be the first to admit that but mm -hmm. on a better path is probably mm -hmm. uh, the best way the best way that I can say it. So I think there's a tremendous amount of value there. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too comes from just this, um, like letting go of control, like realizing that like you are not in control of everything and you, like all the responsibility doesn't fall on you. And when you sort of give a little bit of, of that up and sort of surrender to it, it um, it's really powerful because if you try to control everything, it's not going to go the way you want it to go. <laughs> it be very freeing. Yeah. There are three questions left, but one of them, I think we, we already tied in about, you know, ideally physicians becoming a bit more in tune with mm -hmm. functional medicine and whatnot. So I'm going to, I'm going to, Kevin, I'm sorry, but you think your question got answered uh, earlier. So <laughs> that, leaves, that leaves us with two. And one of them I like, and it's from June. I hope I'm saying your name properly. And it ties into something you said at the very beginning that I was hoping we'd get to circle back to. So we're getting the opportunity here. So June says, hi, Julie. I've been following your journey since my best friend introduced me to CrossFit back in college. We're both currently in medical school. We're wondering how your view of patients and medicine has changed or evolved since college, your days as an athlete, a medical student, resident, and now doctor. 
and if your passions and reasons for pursuing medicine have changed. I went into medical school originally wanting to become a surgeon, but the further I've gone, the more I've realized patient counseling and education is actually what I'm passionate about. And so I keep fighting the good fight. So I guess this is about either your evolution through why you get into medicine and where you stand now. And at the very beginning of this interview, you mentioned something casually, which was something along the lines of, you know, hey, I wanted to get into medicine for this. And then you get into it and you realize, oh, this isn't exactly what I thought that it was. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious now that you're on the other side of from yeah. staring at the white coat to now having the white coat, you know, circle <laughs> back to that and kind of seeing behind the curtain. Yeah. Has your thought process evolved from when you were just a, you know, the bright eyed high school student saying, I'm going to be a doctor one day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, for one, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started this process. And two, really, it was CrossFit that really changed a lot of the ways that I saw medicine and what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I think when I started, I was just really naive. I didn't realize it was that first year of med school where I realized, wow, the majority of what we're treating in our healthcare system is chronic disease, which is really preventable and treatable with lifestyle. And, mm-hmm. um, it was very eye opening. And so I remember even in that first year in the school that I was at, we would spend a half day, I think every other week in a primary care clinic. And it was kind of what we talked about earlier. You'd go and you'd see a patient and you'd tell them, Hey, you know, let's exercise and eat better. And I remember I was, you know, I was so into CrossFit and I was trying to teach people burpees in the office and so excited and, you know, we're going to help them. And then they would come back six months later. And of course, nothing had changed and they'd have to go on more medication. And it was just very disheartening. And then at the same time, I'm going to the gym at night to train and I'm seeing people, you know, come off of medications and lose weight and become more confident, reverse their chronic disease. And it was just so apparent that, you know, the doctor's office is not the place to help people become healthy. It's really in the gym. It's in the community. It's what people are doing in their day-to-day lives. And so that was started that paradigm shift for me of, okay, when I started med school, the only thing I thought I didn't want to do was primary care. Cause I thought mm. it's super boring. It's too broad. I want to just be an expert at one part of the body and know it really well. And once I started to see, you know, how big of a problem we had with chronic disease, how backwards our healthcare system was, how we weren't really able to help people be healthy. It just changed everything. And I suddenly was like, okay, I'm going to go into family medicine and do primary care. And this is the way, the best way that I have to be able to help people. I didn't want to catch people when it was too late. I wanted to try to help them early on. And so that changed my trajectory and, and helped me go into primary care. And then even from there, you see how, because the way the healthcare system is set up, it's just not a great way to help people change their lifestyle, which is really most of the time what the root cause is. And so that's what really opened my mind to things like functional medicine and things like how can we use you know, how can we better partner with what's happening in CrossFit affiliates to actually help people create health? That's, I, I hope that just catches on like wildfire, honestly, to the medical community, you know, in, in general. And when, and when I was involved with CrossFit health, it basically, it did two things at the same time. It was profoundly depressing just mm-hmm. to hear about the trials and tribulations that these poor physicians were in and these were going through just, trying to get good, useful information to people. But then it was so uplifting to see how many 
doctors were realizing just what you said, like we can help people inside and outside the gym and how you move and how you eat is just the keys to the castle. And to see mm-hmm. those light bulbs going off for people that are in such a position of authority in our society that, that everyone's going to go to and trust and want to hear what they have to say for those, even at that time, small group of physicians to be giving what I knew was fantastic, usable, accurate information everything starts small, right? A little grassroots mm-hmm. takeover. So hopefully, hopefully that continues. Well, uh, final, final question from Molly and a great one to end on. And, and Molly, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here, but basically what's, what is your future for implementing your functional medicine knowledge? You know, what does the next five, 10 years look like for you? You're going to stay where you are. You're going to open your own practice. What's on the horizon? It's a great question. And actually, I think I can share a little bit here. Um, You know, when I came out of residency, I thought I was going to open my own practice because I thought that was the only path to be able to do to practice medicine the way that I wanted to and the way that I I felt comfortable with um, to be able to best help people. But then it was a little less than a year ago that I met um, this practice in Lexington, Kentucky called Wild Health that basically they were doing a lot of what I wanted to do. They were people that I was very aligned with um, in terms of vision and where they were going and the type of medicine they practiced. And so I started working with them um, and we should be, I think, you know, Eric has said this on a previous podcast and hopefully it should be more public knowledge, but we're working on partnering with CrossFit to actually bring this functional medicine, precision medicine type of care to the CrossFit community, which I am nice. so excited about. I think it's yeah. going to be incredibly powerful. And I think it it actually creates that conversation between what primary care is and being able to look at, you know, biomarkers and um, labs and things like that. And then what's happening in the gym and using the gym and the affiliates in the community to actually put it into practice. And so I think, you know, I have big hopes and dreams for it. I think we can totally change the way primary care is practiced um, in the country and all over the world. We'll see. Oh, that would be absolutely amazing. And, and we need it. I mean, there's, there's the source that the world has a critical need for exactly that thing. So 200 episodes, congratulations. That's, Thank that's you. amazing. Congrats on all your accomplishments. Thank you for letting me be a part of this milestone. And hopefully we'll circle back uh, when you're at episode 300 or 400. Yeah, that sounds great. And thank you so much for doing this. This was really fun. I appreciate it, Pat. My pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.